I just got to meet him tonight in person, but I felt like I've known him for a while. We have a lot of mutual friends, and uh, I, I get a tape from his home group every week, so I hear him giving coins and hear you know hear him talking about people and people talking about him. So, so <laughs> that's really I've really been looking forward to meeting him. Um, he seems to really be loved out there, and I'm sure we'll love him too. Scott B from Bellevue, Nebraska. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Beth. My name is Scott Alcoholic. Because of God ain't a sponsor, I've been sober since the 24th of October of 1981. And uh, I am truly grateful for that. Um, I am truly glad to be here. I want to thank the committee for inviting me, Beth, and, and all of you, and Darren and, and Jenny for picking me up, who originally are from Bellevue, Nebraska. Uh, and I have some really close friends in this room that I saw get sober. Uh, Karen, who will speak Sunday morning, I used to sit with her on in Lincoln, Nebraska, and watch her shake as she ate lunch. And uh, Sean and Cricket, it's good to see you again. I am just really amazed that someone would invite me to speak in, in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, because two reasons. One, I'm from a small community of Plattsburgh, Nebraska, which probably no one in this building has never heard of. And two, I'm a Cornhusker fan. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, what the hell, nice try. Uh, I am glad to be here and sober. I'm excited that, that you invited me to speak because for me, I am, uh, I'm amazed that Alcoholics Anonymous can take me from where I was 15 years ago to where I am today. And uh, I'm, I'm very grateful. And it's always an honor to speak in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and I'm sober 15 years. I'm 38 years old, almost. And there's no way that you can do that unless you go to Alcoholics Anonymous. Unless you work the 12 steps, have a sponsor, and have a home group. And that's what I hope to share with you today or tonight because uh, I am from Bellevue, Nebraska. My home group is the Foxhall Group that meets on Tuesday night in Bellevue, Nebraska. Uh, we make 1,400 cups of coffee. We set up 425 chairs, and the room is packed. And uh, it's packed with enthusiasm. Uh, we have people who have been sober from 32 years to one day. And uh, we carry one thing. We carry the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. So if you're new here, and, and I hope that, that if you ever come to Bellevue, Nebraska, look us up. Uh, we're huge, and we have a lot of fun. Um, let me tell you a little bit about my past. I'm from Plattsburgh, Nebraska, which is a small community south of Bellevue. Uh, it's known for two things. It's got 13 bars and 13 churches. Uh, <laughs> it was a very, very uh, alcoholic community. You get drunk on Saturday and you go to church on Sunday. And, and that's the environment I was raised in. I was raised in with a lot of booze and, and a lot of alcohol, a lot of violence. And I can tell you as I stand here right now, uh, 30 years later, I knew if my parents didn't drink alcohol, my mother wouldn't beat my father up. I knew that if my parents wouldn't drink alcohol, my mother wouldn't beat my dad up. And every time they did that, they put me in an environment that most of the time I was underneath my bed scared to death. And knowing that if they wouldn't drink they wouldn't be that way. And I know when I grow up, I'm not going to be that way. I'm not going to drink alcohol. I'm not going to hit my wife. I'm not going to yell at my children. I'm not going to go out and drink for a couple of days and not come home. And I swear to in front of God and everybody in my life, I wasn't going to do that. And uh, about six years later, I had my first drink of alcohol. It was on my ninth birthday. It was a pint or a fifth of Kessler's. I don't remember exactly what it was, but I remember what it did for me. And when I drank alcohol, it took me places that night at nine years old. I remember the next morning I woke up, I had peed my pants, I puked all over me, I badmouthed everybody in my family, and the reason why I know that is because my friend told me that. 
And uh, I must have I liked it. I remember being sick. Uh, so that night when I did that, I think it took me somewhere that I've always wanted to go. And I always wanted to feel different. Because I was raised in an environment where for eight years of my life, I had a wonderful family. My, I mean, my parents tried very, very hard to give me what I needed. Uh, my parents would, would have a nice dinner, and they would go down to the bar and have a couple drinks, and they would come home, and they'd just beat the hell out of each other. And, and I liked it. I mean, I liked the excitement. Uh, but one day, my father came home and, and uh, packed his bag and left, and, and I didn't see him from that day on. And I always blamed my mother because she drank too much. I always blamed my father because he drank too much. Uh, at nine years old, I started spending a lot of time with my grandmother. My grandmother was a very religious woman, and she would let me go to church with her on Sunday and Sunday nights and Wednesday nights. And, and I spent a lot of time with her trying to find God because I knew that my grandmother had something very special. And I wasn't one of those alcoholics that just drank every night at nine years old. I, I wasn't one of those guys. I was one of those guys that if you had alcohol in your house and I would spend the night with your kids, we'd drink it. And that's how I was. And I know it's really hard to describe this. Well, it's really not. But I was 10 years old. I had a lot of pimples on my face. I had rotten teeth. I had, I had a flat top. And I was a really ugly kid. And, and I, I swear to God I was. I mean, I ain't kidding you. But when I drank alcohol, my, when I put alcohol in my system, my pimples went away, my hair got straight, my teeth got straight, and I could go to that seventh grade dance and go up to that pretty cheerleader and say, would you dance with me? And she'd say yes. And that was it. I had the answer. I have a little, there's a little lady in our group called Peggy Martin, which most of you probably heard of her. Uh, Peggy's been sober a long time. She talks about when she drank, her boobs got big. And I could relate, man. When I drank, man, I was the slickest dancer in seventh grade. I was cool. I mean, I could go places. And uh, from that point on until I got sober, I looked for that feeling. And I'll tell you what alcohol really did for me. It took away the pain. Because I was raised in an environment that I wasn't very proud of. My parents would get paid with, on, with food stamps. We'd go to the grocery store and buy food with our food stamps. And I was ashamed of that. And today, I, I mean, I don't blame my alcoholism on my parents. I think something there is a part of it. But I, I'm an alcoholic today because I love to drink. I love what it did for me. And um, I was a very active in, in sports. I played football and I wrestled. And, and I was one of those kids that would, would be a jock one day and I'd be a nerd the next day. And, and I was really a goofy-looking kid. I mean, I just, I brought some pictures that I'll show you. I'll pass you out during the weekend. But pizza, the girls in school used to call me Pizza Face. And that's how I felt. I mean, I felt like a, a, a real nerd. But when I drank, I mean, I just, when I, once I took a drink of alcohol, it, it hit the bottom of my toes, and it would just take me places. And, and I started drinking as much as I possibly could. And, and at 10, 11 years old, we had, Platts was a small community. We had a main drag. And in Plattsmouth, it's very simple. You ride up and down on Main Street honking each other. That's all we had to do. Uh, so I, w- I would go on the corner about 7th and Main Street and wait for someone, to, probably Chuck's age, to go in the bar and buy me some booze. And, uh, I mean, I would slip, I'd slip him a $20 bill. And I- I'll tell you how I got the money. I stole it. I'd steal $20 from somebody, and I'd give them to buy me booze, and they'd go on and buy me a 12-pack. And all of a sudden, I'd have all kinds of friends and uh, I would get drunk, and uh, I started doing having a lot of problems in school. Uh, I started having a lot of problems in my house. I had, a, I, uh, my mother came home one day and, and, and brought this huge man home. I mean, this guy was huge, and she said, "This is your uncle." And my mother brought a lot of uncles home. I mean, they're different guys of all time. And uh, <laughs> this guy, this guy, I kid you, this guy was probably six eight. He had hands that were like bricks, and he was a cement mason, and he had big ears. 
and he reminded me of Dumbo the Elephant. <laughs> and uh, they started dating, and, and my mother announced to me and my sister that they were going to get married. And uh, I didn't like this guy, and this guy didn't like me. And the next thing she told me is that he had an opportunity to play football at the University of Nebraska. And I am truly a Cornhusker fan. I was really impressed. And uh, the next thing she told me that changed my life for the rest of my life, she said he has eight girls. Now, <laughs> you gotta, you got to listen to the story really slow because this is a really... These eight girls and my sister and I lived in a two-bedroom house that was pink. And... Uh, <laughs> We had one bathroom, and uh, my bed, my bedroom instantly became the couch. And we had one of those rollout couches that just folds over. It was leather and had gray duct tape on it. And I really, really hated these girls. I mean, I think it was my first time. It was my first resentment. And one of my stepsisters' name was Moose. And I, I tell you, she she is the ugliest woman I've ever seen in my life. Uh, and I'm one of those guys who like to start fights. And I'd go up to her and I'd call her Moose. And I'd run out the side door and she'd chase me down and just beat the hell out of me. And uh, today Moose is a really heavy drinker. And I hope someday she gets here. But I was raised in this environment with all these women. And I mean, I had a lot of friends. And all of a sudden my friends slowly left me. Uh, they started dating my sisters or my stepsisters. And, and this pink house, and, and I mean, it's a real ego thing in Plasma, man, to live in a pink house. And we're living in this pink house, and I really suggested to my parents that maybe we should move somewhere else. Because I was a jock, and I was playing football, and I was a state wrestler, and I mean, I had this image of myself. And um, so they found another place for us to live, and it was above a bar. And it's, the bar was called the water hole. And my bedroom instantly became the dining room table area. I had a fold-out couch, and at about 9 o'clock every night, the, the country music would come up from downstairs, and I was 10, 11 years old, and I would stand up on the table and I would sing to my sisters and their friends. And I started being an entertainer, and, and all of a sudden I started doing things I didn't want to do, like breaking into places and stealing a lot of booze. I, the water hole, uh, I mean, I can never go back and pay them the money I owe them um, because I'd have a lot of people involved in it. But I became a thief instantly because I needed to drink. I wanted to take the pain away, and I started doing a lot of things I'm not very proud of. And, and at 16 years old, I got my first job in a grocery store. And they hired me to sack groceries. And I was one of those kids that was very shy, like I said before. And I'd sack groceries and look at my shoes. And that's how I was. And I'll never forget my first paycheck. It was $27 and some odd cents. And I took that check, and I went down on 7th and Main Street, and I waited for someone to buy me booze. Because I knew if I had this money, I could have friends, it would take the pain away. And that's all I wanted. And I started doing that for a long time. And, and uh, you know, when you're an alcoholic like me, you like your job because you like money. And you produce. And at 17 years old, I was assistant manager of this grocery store. And in Plasma, Nebraska, there's only two grocery stores. And I was assistant manager at the number one grocery store in Plasma. And that's a lot to hold up to for an alcoholic. Because look what I have done with my life. And uh, things started happening. And I started, and I know this is a real corny story, but I always like to tell it because in the 70s, you know, in the 60s, everybody used to go hang out and smoke dope. But in the 70s, where I grew up, we used to hang out at a place called Skateland. I don't know if there's any roller skaters in here. But we used to get in our car and go up to Skateland in Bellevue and, and hang out and try to find her. And I, you know, I'd roll around in my, my roller skates with my pimple face, and, and I'd go up to her and say, hey, you want to skate? And uh, she'd call me pizza face and skate away. And, and one day I'm skating around this place looking cool like I always did, and, and I looked over at the concession stand and I saw her. 
I knew that she was it. I know she was the answer in my life because my whole life, every time I had a woman in my life, from 9 years old to 17 years old, that was the answer. It fixed me. So I went up to her and asked her to marry me. And she said no. So I begged her to marry me. And uh, we dated for a while. And, and uh, at 17 years old, I graduated from high school. I had to make sure my diploma was signed because I think the reason why they got rid of me because I, had a lot, I caused a lot of problems at school. And I graduated, and I started dating this girl. We finally got married. And, and, and you know, I was 17, 18 years old. I, I, I got a new job. I worked for Coca-Cola Bottling Company. I was a driver, Coca-Cola driver. And at Coca-Cola Company, if you got a job, it was a very prestige job. And uh, I remember that that we decided to get our own little apartment. And, and I wasn't I was drinking very heavily. She didn't drink. She thought that she had to take care of me, <laughs> which was really kind of nice. And she would drive me to parties and pick me up from parties and drop me off at parties. And it was really kind of a neat deal. And uh, <laughs> until one night I got really, really drunk and uh, had my hands around her throat. And I remember I had an instant thought that I remember saying to myself when I was very, very young, I'm not going to do that when I get married. And it scared the hell out of me. It's not that I just quit going out, I quit drinking and went to Alcoholics Anonymous. It made me drink more because all of those thoughts and feelings came back and I wanted to put them to sleep. And uh, at 17 years old, we decided to move. We moved to uh, Washington State, where I had an uncle living out there, and he told me if I came out there, I'd get a job. And it was a fix. It was just a, I mean, it was a fix for me. And we got out there, and, and uh, I didn't have a job. And found out she's pregnant, and I didn't know how that worked, but she's pregnant. And, you know, I was one of those ego guys. I had, I had an ego as big as this room when I was drinking because if you had something, I thought I had to have it. So all my friends drove brand-new blazers around, so I went out and bought me a brand-new blazer. 1979 Chevy Blazer right off the showroom floor, and I'll never forget it. My payments were 253 and I couldn't even afford it. But by God, I had that. Look what I have. And my life was always based on toys and things. And, and uh, I was having a lot of problems out at Washington State because I was 18 years old. I had to be 21 to drink. And I didn't know anybody to buy me booze, but I had my uncle. And my uncle came up to me one day and said, swallow this thing, you'll like it. And I swallowed this thing, and I liked it. And it was speed. And I don't know about you, and... and Speed gave me the ability to drink a lot more. I never got drunk. I just constantly was on the go. And uh, I started doing a lot of that in college, and I wasn't going home from work. The guy said, come on, let's go party. And I go party, and next thing I know, it's Tuesday morning. And uh, my wife was pregnant. And I'll tell you, uh, I was 20 years old, living in Washington State, and I had absolutely nothing. And uh, I'll never forget my daughter being born. I was at the hospital, and my daughter was born. I don't remember it as I stand here today because I was drunk. Uh, I was in a blackout. I went to Seattle Seahawk game and Dallas Cowboy game, and I don't remember it. And I don't remember coming home. And I never blamed it on alcohol. I never blamed it on drugs. I blamed it that my parents did, so why can't I do this? And uh, I started drinking very heavily. One morning she woke up, and uh, could I have my water, please? Thanks. She woke up and she said, uh, I think we need to go back to Bellevue uh, because it seems like this thing isn't working for us. And uh, we decided to get up and we moved back to Bellevue, Nebraska. And I swore one morning, I put my hand on the Bible and I said, when I do this and I get back there, my life is going to be different. I'm not going to drink anymore. And I was back there in two days and not 24 hours later, I was in a bar drunk saying, what did I do wrong? What am I doing different this time that I didn't do out there? And uh, things got really tough. I, I started going to bars and having affairs on my wife and doing something that I wasn't very proud of. And uh, one night I went home, and, and uh, I ended up with another woman, and, and she called, and my wife answered, and you know the rest of the story. Uh, 
the first time in my life someone said something to me that I thought I could really relate to. She says, why don't you get the hell out of my life? All you think about is you. And that is such a true statement. The first 22 years of my life, all I thought about was me. I was the most important person in the world. I based everything in my life based on getting drunk. Because I wasn't one of those alcoholics that went out for a couple beers and went home. I was one of those guys that once I went out and got started, I was toast. I would get home maybe Tuesday, maybe Wednesday, and uh, a lot of things happened. I, I, I got back to work with Coco Bowling Company and started having a lot of problems with them. And I got back to work with uh, uh, my father-in-law hired me as a construction man, and I'm not a construction man. And, and the day that she threw me out, my father-in-law fired me the next day. says, get the hell out of here. We don't need you in our lives. Uh, I went back to work for Coco Bowling Company. And, and believe it or not, you know, sometimes your job can be a real hopeful thing for you. Uh, Coco Bowling Company put me in charge of this, this row that I was on that was off at Air Force Base. And off at Air Force Base had pop machines and beer machines. Don't get ahead of me. And uh, every morning I had to go to Coco, I had to go to the plant, get my truck, and go to the base and pick up 15, 20 cases of Budweiser. And I was in charge of all these beer machines, and I was responsible to make sure all the airmen had beer. And I'm such a terrible drunk. I mean, I really am. I would go to these beer machines, and I think, you know, those airmen really don't need this. I need this. So I'd pop a can of Budweiser, I'd start drinking, drive around base drinking Budweiser's. And, or I'd put a case of Budweiser in and take $10 out for them, for the company, and $10 out for me. And thought I deserved it. And uh, there's a lot of airmen around this world that I probably owed men to. And I was wrong for making sure your beer machine was empty. Because I didn't mean to. I mean, my intention was not to steal the money or drink the beer. But then I started catching on. I started selling the beer off my truck. And uh, the company caught on to this, and they suspended me for three days. And it's a great thing for an alcoholic. You get suspended. Uh, and I drank for three days. And one day I was driving off the interstate with my Coca-Cola truck, and I hit an elderly couple and, and I almost killed them. I mean, and they suspended me for three days. So they started catching on to my program. So I didn't know what to do. So I thought I'd better cut back on my drinking. And I tried to not drink for three days. And I went absolutely crazy, absolutely crazy. And I would do, and I was telling Darren about it. I mean, I was so desperate, I found a black beauty one day, and I opened it up, and I crushed it, and I snorted it. I mean, I was so desperate to take the feelings away. And uh, things got pretty serious for this alcoholic. I started hanging out in a place in Council Iowa called the Nashville Club. It's a country music bar, and I love country music. I would, I would go over there and sit down there where she is, and this woman would stand up here, and she'd sing to me. And she had four colors, different hair. And I loved her. I mean, she would put her foot on the speaker and point at me and sing the song by Pat Benatar, Hit Me With Your Best Shot. And I thought I was in heaven. I knew, I knew if I had her in my life, I'd be okay. So I would go home and, with her, and we'd visit and talk and get drunk. And next day I'd go out and do my job, which consisted of getting in my Coke truck, going to work, filling the beer machines up, drinking some beers, going back to the plant, walking out of the cocoa bowling plant with quarters in my pockets, and going next door to the stage two lounge and stacking these quarters up and buying my boss's drinks. And I thought I had the world by the tail. I hadn't seen my daughter in a year, six months. I hadn't talked to my parents. I hadn't seen my, any of my relations because all I was concerned about was getting drunk. And I would go home and I would clean myself up, and I'm such a sissy alcoholic. I'd go home and put my Calvin Klein's on and my button-down shirt and my Stetson cowboy hat on and my foo-foo juice, and I'd get, I'd get my 1973 duster, orange with bourbon bumps all over it, 
and drive over to the Nashville club and sit down here and I would beg her to sing that song to me. And I did it for months. And then all of a sudden I would look over there and I would see her and I thought maybe I'd better go home with her. And it would start over and over and over. And, um, you know, I'm not real proud of what I did uh, today. I'm very grateful for what I did because it got me here. But I was doing things that I wouldn't think I would never do because my parents did it. I hadn't seen my father for years, and he hadn't contacted me. At that time, it was 10 years or 12 years. And I hadn't contacted my daughter in months. I, hadn't I was ordered by the Sarpy County Courts of Nebraska to pay child support. I hadn't paid child support payment in months. I hadn't paid my bills in months. I was running from the law, and I was doing all that. And I would go to the Nashville Club every night, and I'd buy my drinks and wait her to sing to me because that made me feel better. And I did it for a number of months. And, and, and I'll tell you, I got sober when I was 22 years old. And I'll tell you exactly how it worked that night. It was the 23rd of October. I was sitting in Nashville Club one more night listening to her sing to me. And I was a real insecure drunk when I was drinking. Somebody would try to pick her up. I would just, I'm one of those guys that I would love to fight when I was drunk. Thank God there was bouncers around me. And uh, one night, some guy made a comment to her. I got jealous. I ran backstage. And I raised, one more night, I raised a fight with her. And we drove home, and she's working the gas and brake, and I'm steering, arguing. And we got home, and, and I don't know what happened. I know the next morning I woke up with a three-page letter taped to the door, and the basic said, you better get help or get out. Because she had thrown me out many, many times. I mean, I used to go, I used to get thrown out of her apartment because I'd find out, she'd find out I was with another woman. And I'd put all my Coca-Cola uniforms in the backseat of my duster. And I would go downtown in North Omaha, sleep in my car. And I would get out the next morning and shake my uniforms and put them on and go to work. And I didn't think anything was wrong with that. I thought normal people did that. And that morning I woke up. She said, you better get help or get out. And I said, what do I do? And she said, why don't you try Alcoholics Anonymous? And I thought, why? Why would I want to do that? Considering the week before, I just told a good friend of mine, he was beating his wife up in this bar. I said, God, man, you need to go to A. A to help you. And uh, I told her that I would do that. And I, she said, why don't you call Alcoholics Anonymous? And I called Alcoholics Anonymous. It was 8.31 in the morning on Saturday. And I called Alcoholics Anonymous, and this, phone, this answer came on the phone, hello, Alcoholics Anonymous, very sweet and loving voice. And I said, hi, my name is Scott. I think I might have a drinking problem. And I was crying like a baby because I knew one more time if I lost her, I was in trouble. And uh, she said, when's the last time you had a drink? And I said, a couple hours. And she said, if you have a desire to drink right now, this is the kicker, eat some candy. I thought, Why? Why would you want to eat sweets? She says, just do it and trust me, and I'll have a guy call you in 15 minutes. And I sat there, and I cried like a baby. And, and, and I didn't do it because I knew I was an alcoholic. I knew I had some problems. And uh, about 15 minutes later, a man called me. And he, I answered the phone. He said, hi, my name is Tom. I'm from Alcoholics Anonymous. I would like to take you to a meeting this morning if you'd like to go. And I said, I'm sorry, I can't go this morning. I had a commitment. I was in a process of trying to change my career. And uh, <laughs> wait till you hear what I was trying to do. I was going to modeling school, and uh, it's, it's kind of funny now, but you should have seen me then, um, and I told, I, of course, I wasn't going to tell this guy that, and I said, I'm sorry, I got class to go to, and he said, I'll tell you what you do. When you get home from class, why don't you call me, and I'll take you to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that morning in class, and I don't know if anybody's been to modeling school in this room or not, but the modeling school I went to, you used to walk up and down a plank, and, and you act like you're a model. And the secret of being a model, if anybody wants to try it, is take a quarter and put it between the cheek of your ear, cheek of your butt, and walk. And try not to let it fall out. 
If you can do that, you're a model. Uh, it really, I bet you, there's a lot of people in this room that ask me to go home and try it. Yeah. I relate. It really does work. Uh, so I went to class that day, and I'll tell you, it was probably one of the most miserable days of my life. I had a hole in my stomach that big, uh, and there wasn't nothing that could fill that hole. And I'm literally telling you that you could have drove a tree trunk through it, because I felt so guilty about every area of my life, and I felt, I felt bankrupt. And that night, I got home from school, and I sat there on, the, on her kitchen table, and I thought, do I call this guy or do I don't call him? Maybe I should just go to the National Club and get drunk one more time, and I won't have to worry about it. And this little thing in my mind says, why don't you call him? What do you got to lose? So I picked up the phone and I called Tom. I said, Tom, this is Scott. I would love to go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting with you. So he came over to my house at 7.15 and he knocked on my door. And I figured in my mind, at 22 years old, you think what an alcoholic is. It's an old man wrapped in a brown coat with a brown paper bag. That's what my mind told me. And this guy knocked on my door and he was dressed very nice. And he had a, brown, a really nice cut beard. And we walked down the back of her apartment and we got in his car and he had velour seats. And I don't know about you, but my duster had springs coming out of the bottom of the seats. And we're driving to this meeting, and he's talking to me, not about me, he's talking about him. And he said some things that I hope I never forget. He says, I don't know what your problem is. I hope that you never forget where you come from, one. And you don't have to live that way anymore if you don't want to. And I don't know where Robbie is tonight. I know he's in here somewhere because I saw him. But I hope you remember the 31st of October and never forget where you come from because you don't have to live that way anymore. And that, if I have nothing else to say tonight, if you're new in this room, you never have to live that way another day of your life. And I took that. I mean, I didn't just take that and run and go to Alcoholics Anonymous, but that made a sense to me. And I remembered that from that day on. And we're driving this meeting. He's talking about the 12 steps and talking about God and, and, and talking about doing this thing. And, and uh, we went in this meeting, and the first person I met was a lady, which was his wife. And and uh, she gave me some phone numbers, and she said, we're going to go inside. Don't be nervous. There's a lot of people in there. I thought, yeah, probably about 150 old bats sitting around smoking cigars. And I walked down these steps, and there was about 100 young people in that room. And all of them came up and gave me their phone number and shook my hand and welcomed me to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'll tell you, they sit down in the meeting, and they opened the meeting with the 12 steps, the 12 traditions, and the 12 concepts. And afterwards, they said, we're going to break up in groups. And he said, Scott, come with me. And they took me in the little room, and about 12 or 13 guys, 12 stepped me in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'll tell you, I don't know if I was alcoholic that night, and I really don't care. I know that I could relate to a couple of the guys. Because one of the guys sat in that room that night and talked about how many, many nights he would lay in his bed with the shotgun in his mouth wanting to pull the trigger. And I'm not one of those alcoholics. I hate blood. But I can tell you I related because many, many nights driving home from the Nashville Club, knowing that if I pulled off the ride a little bit and went down that embankment and that car rolled and I died, I wouldn't have to worry about the little girl anymore. I wouldn't have to worry about my mother and my sister and my father anymore because I had, I had disappointed them in my life. I wouldn't have to worry about my grandmother anymore. And I, I, I could write to, really relate to this guy. And after the meeting, they grabbed my hand and they said, let's pray. And I got scared. And I thought, man, we're going to Jesus now. And uh, I didn't share it with them. I just felt it. And uh, afterwards, they're real serious, and they hug and kiss, and you know how we A's do it. And uh, they said, come on, we're going to go down to Village Inn, and we're going to have pie and ice cream. And folks, believe it or not, when I got into Alcoholics Anonymous, I weighed 135 pounds. I couldn't keep my pants on. I was so thin. And they wanted to go down, and they introduced me to this pie and coffee, and I instantly got fat. 
I mean, these guys would sit down and talk about, well, Scott, what are you doing tomorrow? Well, I'm going to watch football tomorrow. I'm a Bronco fan, and Broncos are on Sunday, and I'm going to watch the Broncos. They said, well, we're going to go to a meeting. Why? Football's on. And uh, so uh, that night, Tom took me home, and, and on the way home, he, he said, I can't tell you, Scott, if you're an alcoholic or not. Uh, all I can tell you is if you go to a meeting every day for six weeks, you can decide if you're an alcoholic. And I, he dropped me off. He said, I'll, I'll pick you up tomorrow. I said, I'm sorry, I can't go on Sunday. I've got to watch football. And uh, he, got, he dropped me off at the apartment. I got in my 73 duster, and I drove over to the Nashville Club. I don't know why. I drove over there, and I walked in the front door, and I really wanted to go to that bar and have a drink. But I walked back to that stage, and she was happy to be on break, and I looked her right in the eyes and said, I'm an alcoholic synonymous now. I'm sober. My last thing get better, I ran out. You know what's really amazing about that? I went home that night, and I slept the whole night through. It was the first night in years that I didn't wake up in the sweats, pee in the bed. You know how you hang clothes up on closets? I would wake up in the middle of the night and know that that guy's going to get me. I just knew it. I can't move. I know he's going to get me. And, and, I mean, there's a speaker, Clint. Clint talks about a sock in the corner. I thought I was a rat. Man, I could relate to that. Uh, and, and I slept the whole night through, not waking up once. And I woke up the next morning, and my phone rang off the wall. People in Alcoholics Anonymous call. I didn't even know who they were. Hey, how you doing, Scott? Are you, you know, if you decide to drink, drink some orange juice, eat some candy, don't drink. I'll pick you up at 7 o'clock tonight. No, I'm sorry, you can't. I can't go to the meeting tonight. And I didn't go. And I'm very lucky to get through that day because I shook like a baby. And uh, the next morning, I, I, my sponsor called me. I assumed he was my sponsor. He told me he was. And uh, <laughs> he called me. He said, I'm going to pick you up at 7.15 on the corner. Make sure you're ready. We're going to the meeting up in Omaha. And I was living at home all the time. We're going to take you to a meeting. And I said, okay. And I was ready. And I went to work. And I was, real, you know, I was shaking. I had some problems during the day. And I would, I would eat candy. And I would drink some orange juice. And, and he picked me up that night. And he took me, took me to my second AA meeting which was on the ninth step. And guys were talking about owing people money and paying it back. And I thought, Jesus Christ, what am I getting myself into? I mean, I've been a thief since I've been three years old. I mean, if your purse was open, I was in it. And uh, that's how I was. And, and at the end of the meeting, they were kind enough since I was new. They said, would you like to say something, Scott? And I said, yeah, my name's Scott Barn. I'm an alcoholic. And I started to cry. And I don't know why I cried, because I guess at the time I felt like I belonged and a guy came up to me and patted me on the back. He says, just keep coming back. Don't drink today. And I went home that night, and I felt pretty good. And my sponsor called me the next morning again because, he told, again, he told me he was my sponsor. He said, I'm going to pick you up at 6 o'clock. We're going to go to the Bellevue, Nebraska, and we're going to go to a meeting. And I thought, I can't go down there. And he said, why can't you go down there? I said, because I heard a lot of people in Bellevue. He said, that's okay. You'll be all right. You'll be with me. I thought this guy was God. I really did. I thought, I thought he could protect me, and he picked me up. And on the way down, these guys were talking about sponsorship and all this. And, man, I was really getting into it. Um, and I said, what's this thing all about? And he said, just relax. I figured there would probably be 30 people there. I walk on this Foxhall group, and there was about 100 people there. I mean, in 1981, we had 100 people at our meeting. And I thought, oh, my God. And I sit there with a cup of coffee. It's a speaker meeting. I just, like this. Whoops, didn't mean to spill it. Uh, <laughs> and I was literally scared that someone was going to walk in that back door and know who I was and beat me up. And that's how I truly felt. And my sponsor chaired the meeting that night, and he stood up there and do what they do. And he said, I would like to introduce our speaker now and introduce Reggie Jackson. I know baseball. I know who Reggie Jackson is. A black man walked down the aisle, 
got behind the podium, introduced himself as Reggie Albi. It was a joke. I didn't catch it until afterwards. But, uh, <laughs> and I was three days sober, and Reggie was sober five years, and Reggie just got to Bellevue from California. And he stood at this podium, and I don't think he made much sense to me except one thing. He said, wherever you see me in Alcoholics Anonymous, you'll see this big book. I will take it to every meeting with me. And if you want to stay sober, so will you. My sponsor gave me the big book the first time of my meeting. And I took it home, and I tried to read this thing, but I couldn't read when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I had an eighth grade education. I couldn't get a sentence out. And I would try to read it. It would make absolutely no sense to me. And uh, I started going to a lot of meetings. And, and I tell you, my sponsor, I'll always be grateful for him because he's the man that saved my life. He gave me the ability to, one, not drink one day at a time. I might have put him on a pedestal. I don't really care. I stayed sober. I had assignments to call him every day at a certain time, and I better call him. If not, I thought the AA police was coming after me. <laughs> and I truly felt that. I really meant that. I mean, I had people in my life every day calling me and, and, you know, let's do this, let's do that, let's go to meetings. And I went to a meeting almost every day. And I'll tell you, at 22 years old, I had lost everything in my life. And I swear to God, a week sober, I knew I belonged here. And the reason why was because the people in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous seemed to care about me. I mean, little Peggy Martin would come up and shake my hand and say, you're going to be okay, guy. And I started hanging out with a bunch of young people. And these guys were, are sober 17 and 18 years today. And they became my best friends. And we'd go places to speak. And I was three months sober, folks. I got my three-month chip. And I stood behind a podium of alcoholics and says, Jesus Christ, this thing works. I mean, I was on cloud nine. We have a guy in alcoholics and named Dick Martin who sponsors a lot of people. And I thought I was going to sponsor Dick Martin. I mean, I went on this roll, man. I was My first pigeon, my first guy I sponsored, I don't know if you call them pigeons here or sponsees, was 52 years old. He owned his own trucking firm. I sponsored him. I drove a 73 Duster. Uh, I couldn't afford my rent, but I had three months to ride, and he didn't have it. And I started sponsoring a lot of guys, and I got wrapped up in this thing called Alcoholics Anonymous. At three months sober, I got thrown in the hospital at Cocoa Bonnie Company. I had some back problems. Truck relates. And I fell down, and I really had some bad problems. They put me in the hospital. And, of course, if you're an alcoholic like me, I'm, I was single. I didn't have a girlfriend. Um, they threw me in the hospital, they ran all these tests on me, and they found out that I had an anxiety attack, okay? Uh, which you think you're about ready to, your brains are going to fall your head at any second. And uh, all these people in Alcoholics Anonymous came up and visited me. They brought me apples, and the girls would bring me candy, and the girls would bring me, they come up and visit with me, and they let me read to them. And I mean, I was in there for three or four days, and there was people always in my room. And the third day, they said, we're going to let you go home, and, and here's your doctor's release, and, and I want you to get a ride home. And I called her, the girl I was living with. I said, you can come get me now. They're going to let me out. And they, she said, I'm really sorry. You can't come back here and live. I said, why? She says, I have an Al-Anon sponsor now. <laughs> and she thinks I need to detach from you. I said, you could tell your Al-Anon sponsor to pile sand somewhere. And it wasn't those exact words. And uh, it was really kind of strange because now that Alan sponsor is now sober and Alcoholics Anonymous, which is kind of a neat story. She's been sober less than me, which is better. Um, <laughs> she has to get me coffee. So uh, she threw me out, and I didn't know what to do. I said, well, I better call my sponsor. And I called my sponsor, and I said, hey, you know, she just threw me out. What do I do? Uh, he said, that's okay. We'll put you up in a guy's apartment. And I lived with a, this guy let me stay in his apartment, and he knew I was a thief. He gave me a two-foot-by-four-foot cot. He says, if you touch anything, I'll kill you. 
And uh, I asked him if I could borrow his ironing board. He said, yeah, and I ironed my Coca-Cola uniform that night. I ironed my shirt and my pants and my, my cheat handkerchief and my underwear and my T-shirt. And I tell you, I was going to go back work Monday morning. I was going to start my whole life over. And I truly was. It was going to be different this time. And I walked in there, and I gave my boss my doctor's release, and he says, we no longer need guys like you here. You make me sick. One week, you're, one week you're wonderful, the next week you're just drunk. Get out of here. I thought, wow. So I went and got in my 73 Duster. I drove up the hill to this guy's apartment. I went in and I said, what do I do now? I lost her. I lost my job. And this little thing in the back of my head says, why don't you call your sponsor? And I picked up the phone and I called Tom. And I said, Tom, you ain't going to believe this. <laughs> they fired me. I mean, look how long I've been sober. They fired me. He said, that's okay, kid. Just go to a lot of meetings and don't drink. So I took him literally. I went to a lot of meetings. I was going to 15 AE meetings a week. I was going morning, afternoon, night, midnight meetings. I was sponsoring a lot of guys. I was doing the deal. Because one thing, when I first got here, I knew that what took the pain away is if I was in these rooms, nobody out there could bother me. And that was, that was a great feeling. And one day, I'm sitting in a noon meeting with this bunch of old farts. I mean, I mean they're sober like longer and dirt's been around. And uh, I'm worrying about not having any money and being broke and not paying child support payments and not, you know, my bill system became a grocery sack. Every time I got a bill, I just threw it in a sack and ah, screw them. And uh, I'm whining one day about not having any money. And this old guy, this really Roger Gleason, and he's dead today. And he's sober 45 years and he died. And I always fell in love with him. He said, "Why don't you go get a job?" I said, "I said my sponsor didn't tell me to get a job." He said, you better call your sponsor. <laughs> so I got pissed off at the guy, and I went home and called my sponsor. I said, you can't believe what Roger told me to do. He said, get a job. He said, Scott, why don't you get a job? I thought, oh, you're turning on me now, aren't you? <laughs> so I'm alcoholic, so I put a resume together, an alcoholic resume. This much truth and the rest lies. And, you know, there were some guys in Alcoholics Anonymous that I started to respect. There's four or five guys today that I call heroes of my life. And I watched what they did, and four of them were salesmen. I thought, maybe I could become a salesman. So I'm applying at these places like IBM Corporation. Uh, I didn't know what IBM stood for. Uh, you know. So I'm, I'm, putting, I'm putting all these resumes out, $50,000 plus. And, and I called my sponsor. He said, well, where'd you send your resumes today? And I told him. And he said, okay, it's, it's getting reality. I thought, why? Uh, he said, it's about time you become self-supporting. I thought, oh, boy. So he said, why don't you start looking at some paper and give me a call for you apply. And, and one Sunday morning, there was an end of paper that said, coffee system, apply at 8901 J Street. I called my sponsor. I said, I'm going to go apply here. He goes, well, I said, what do you think? He said, good idea. He said, you put your best outfit on and go up there and apply. So I had one outfit, my modeling outfit. Now, <laughs> hang on a second. <laughs> it was a pair of purple corduroys, <laughs> a purple shirt, and a purple tie. And I had my shoes, I had shoes on that I graduated in 1977. So I drive up to this address in my 1973 orange duster. I'll tell you, I look like Bozo the Clown. And I walk in here and I'm serious as serious can be. I said, I'd like to apply for a salesman's job. And I went in this little room and this lady from Texas interviewed me. And I told her, I was just honest. I said, I really need a job. 
I'm behind in child support. I hadn't paid my bills in months. I'm an alcoholic synonymous. I'm sober, such and such. Please hire me. And she said, you got the job. I went home and I called my sponsor. She said, you ain't going to believe this. She hired me. He said, okay, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'm going to go sell coffee systems. Now, this is very carefully. This is kind of confusing. I'm a coffee salesman. So if you're an alcoholic synonymous, where do you go? Every group in my district had my coffee system. It was great. I didn't have to do any work at all. I, I'd go to the office at 8 o'clock in the morning. I'd, get, you know, I'd go to a meeting at 10 o'clock. I'd have a little lunch. I'd go to a meeting at 1 o'clock. I'd go back to the office about 3.30 and I was top salesman. It was great. Of course, of course, all the old-timers didn't like all my coffee systems in the group. And uh, they started getting a little mad at me. And they got promoted and I started driving a coffee van around now. And I started sponsoring a lot of guys. I was sponsoring 10, 11 guys, and all these guys would load up in this coffee van. And you know those honor snack systems? You put money and take something out? I was in charge of those. <laughs> and all my guys I sponsor ate out of those honor snack systems. And they ate very well. Of course, we never paid for it, but I became the coffee salesman of the month. And I was really doing well, and I was on top of the world. And uh, one day I got a knock on my office door. Thank God I wasn't there. It was a sheriff from Sarpy County. And they had a warrant for me to appear in court. And I thought, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. They finally caught up with me. And I called my sponsor. He said, it's time to get honest. And uh, I sat down with my sponsor, and we did an inventory on my finances very quickly. I just handed him this big grocery sack full of bills. I said, what do I do now? Uh, yeah. And uh, so I uh, went and talked to my attorney, and my attorney has suggested I file bankruptcy. And uh, I wasn't very proud of that a year and a half sober, standing in front of a federal judge saying, I'm sorry, I can't afford to pay my bills. And I, in Alcoholics Anonymous, I thought when you got here, everything was supposed to be wonderful. And uh, I got in some problems, and I filed bankruptcy. And next thing I knew, I had a warrant for me to appear in court because my ex-wife wanted child support payments. I thought she deserved it. I never made them, but I thought she deserved it. And, and uh, you know, I don't know about you. When you're seven or eight months sober, I was absolutely crazy. I mean, I was okay in these rooms. I was really doing the deal. I could always talk the message. But when I went home, I was in bed crying, scared to death, knowing that I couldn't do the same because my case is different. And I did that for a long time. And uh, one day, and I don't know, it just reminded me one day I woke up really, I listened to a speaker do it. So I thought maybe if it works for a speaker, I could do it. And I went out on my deck of my apartment. I said, Jesus Christ, what's wrong with me? I'm never going to make this thing. I know I'm going to drink. And if I'm going to drink, I'm not coming back here because I'm not going to let one of those little pukes over there sponsor me. And, and I really meant that. I mean, I got sober with a guy that's been, I've been sober 10 days longer than him. And by God, he wasn't sponsoring me. And I knew if I got drunk and came back, they would make him sponsor me. And that's a motivation. I mean, that motivated me. And uh, so about a year, I mean, I'll never forget October 24th, 1982, I got my first year chip. And I was excited. And they had a cake for me. And it was really special. And I felt God was going to come down and drop that one year chip on my hand and say, you're healed now. Go. Go help others. And uh, I really felt special. And that didn't happen. I got my chip. And I made a commitment to myself that I'm going to try this thing for five years. And I'm going to give it 100% for five years. And in five years, if I don't like to say after five years what the result is, I'll leave. And my next five years of my life, my life became hell. I mean, it, my next year was hell. I mean, it was a terrible twos. I, I mean, I went to court. I, I had lost, I went bankrupt. I had lost my car. I mean, I woke up one day and my car was gone. God, the bank repossessed my blazer. Jesus. I mean, Christ, I, I was making one payment every other month. And... Uh, and my sponsor made me sit down, and he made me do a fourth and fifth step with him, which I think was the best thing that ever happened to me. It saved my life. 
And I did it been the fifth step the best of my ability at, at, at six or seven months sober, and, and I got through that. And, and uh, I started making a men's list, and about a year sober, I woke up one day, and I knew that I was going to drink. I knew I was literally going to drink. And I needed to do something. My sponsor was out of town. And, and in Bellevue, Nebraska, if you've got a sponsor, you better use them. Because if you don't get, use them, you get dog for it, big time. I mean, they'll ride you. You walk in a meeting, if you're new, you have a sponsor before you get five foot in the door. That's how, I mean, that's how we are. And uh, I sit down, and I called a man I respect more than anybody in the world. And I called Dick Martin. I said, Dick, I really need to talk to you. If I don't talk to you right now, I think I'm going to drink. And, God, I don't want to drink. Because I had all these things falling down on me. And Dick said, okay, come out to my office. And at this time, Dick was sober 17 years. And he closed his door, and I thought this guy was a real arrogant man. He was just, I mean, I didn't like him. But I respected him for what he was doing with his life. And I closed his office door, and he said, what's wrong? And I said, if I don't change my life, I'm going to drink, and I want to change now. And I said, I think all I need to do is change sponsors. And I think not because my sponsor's bad, because I'm not doing anything. I'm doing what I want to do, and I want somebody that really makes me do things. And he said, who do you want? And I said, I want a guy named Jerry Wills. And uh, Jerry was a real quiet guy in Alcoholics Anonymous. He did a lot of things behind the scenes. And I'm one of those alcoholics. When I walk in the door, you know I'm there. I mean, I have a loud mouth. I mean, I saw Karen across the room tonight. I don't know anybody here except Karen and Cricket and a couple other people. I thought, hey, Karen! I mean, I mean, I don't care where I'm at. I just, I mean, that's how I am. And, and uh, he said, okay, you better suggest you go talk to Jerry. And I went to Jerry, and I asked him to sponsor me. And he said, I want you to do four things, five things. You go to meetings, you don't drink, you help others, you be involved in Alcoholics Anonymous, and you do everything I ask you to do. And at that time, I said yes. And I walked away from that table that night, knowing that if I didn't change my life, I wasn't going to be around here very long. And by this time, I had four or five guys that I had got sober in that period, had committed suicide, one hung himself from a tree, one got in a car wreck and died, and two were drinking. And I didn't want to be like that. Because I knew in the back of my mind I had a lot of potential. Because uh, my whole life I had potential. Everywhere I went I had potential. And uh, I started doing what this guy did. The first thing he made me do was move to Bellevue, Nebraska, down to Bellevue. He made me live in this apartment or this house with this guy. This guy's name was Max. Max played the trumpet. Max is about the biggest sad-ass I've ever met in my life. <laughs> and that's just Max. Max that way. He's real enthusiastic. He's just a sad... You know, Darren knows him. He just doesn't smile very much. And he gave me his roof for 85 bucks a month for what I could afford. And every night he would put me to bed with his trumpet. And I was just like a little baby, and I'd go to sleep. And I did that. And I did a fourth and fifth step with this guy. And, and since this point in time, I've done three fifth steps with him because I'm one of those guys I really couldn't get honest. And uh, the first one took me like four weeks to write. I mean, I would write it down and think about it, and I'd erase it. I'd write it down think about it, and I'd erase it. And I did that over and over and over. And finally, he said, just write it down. We'll talk about it later. And uh, he made me do that, and I started sponsoring more guys. I got really involved in this Foxhall group. The Foxhall group is, is, is my home group, and I love it to death. And he made me take some actions I didn't want to do. First thing he made me do is, from here on out, Scott, if you want me to sponsor you, you will pay child support payments. No ifs, buts about it. If you, won't, if you won't want to pay child support payments, I no longer sponsor you. I said, okay, what do I got to do? He says, you go to Baker Supermarket, you buy a $200 money order, you fill it out, you put it in the envelope, you mail it, you bring a copy to me. And if you do that, every month I'll sponsor you. I thought, what a jerk. Um, <laughs> So I walked down to the Baker supermarket. I buy a $200 money order. I fill it. I'll never forget it. Docket 44-151. I kiss the envelope. I put it in the mailbox. And I go show him a copy. And I did that for months. And you know what happened, folks? I called my daughter one day. I called my ex-wife one day. I said, I would like to see my daughter. She says, okay. I went over to pick my daughter up. She was two years old. I got her on my 73 duster. 
I was going to take her to the circus for the first time. And I'm driving down there. My daughter's name is Jenny. She's sitting in the car seat, and I'm driving down there, and she falls asleep. And I pull in this parking lot by the circus, and I sat there, and I literally cried like a baby because I didn't know, have no clue on how to be a father. We sat there for about an hour. We drove home. She woke up, and I said, do you enjoy the circus, Jenny? She goes, yeah, Daddy. We never went to the circus. I had no clue what to do. I would pick my daughter up on weekends. I would bring her over to my sponsor's house, and I would watch my sponsor and his wife treat my daughter, and I would try to do the same thing. I would do that every other week. Next thing I know, I'm getting my, my daughter every week. And I mean, she's doing the A stuff with me, and she's going everywhere I'm going. And, and uh, you know, I'm selling coffee systems. And, and one night I was supposed to meet this lady at the Lady Satellite Group, and I went down and met her, and I walked in the room, and I knew who she was. And God, I just instantly found out that if I had her in my life, it'd be okay. <laughs> I mean, I knew it. I just knew it. And I went up to her, hi, how are you? And... Uh, by this time, I had got rid of my purple outfit and my afro, but um, I said, I said uh, I'm here to set your coffee system up, and I noticed she had a, a wedding band on her hand. And in Alcoholics Anonymous in Bellevue, Nebraska, you don't do that. So I watched her. And we started a bowling league in Bellevue called One Pin at a Time. Cute, huh? Uh, and Sunday mornings, or Sunday afternoons it used to be, and, and, and she was bowling, and I would watch her. And I would watch her. You know, you, you know in any of Bellevue, you know, all these guys have these hit lists for all these women. I mean, I know the guys in the room here have hit lists, but I'd watch her, man, and I'd just watch her. And one day, she's down at the end of the aisle, and my friend Phil McEwen called, yells out, Scott, she's getting a divorce! Man, I ran to the bathroom, I made sure I looked okay. I, I always carried these sample bottles of cologne. I put some foo-foo juice on. <laughs> I walked out of her and said, hey, you want to go out? She goes, no. And I said, why not? She said, my sponsor told me about guys like you. And... Uh, she really, really, really wouldn't go out with me for a long time. And one day I thought, you know, i got to figure it out. I'll ask her daughter out. Her daughter was nine years old. I'd invite her to a movie. By this time I'd gotten a better job. I'd become a car salesman. And uh, <laughs> imagine a car salesman. And uh, started driving all these nice sobs. And I picked her daughter up for the movie. And also eventually I asked her out. And she finally said yes because her sponsor kept saying no. And she decided to be defiant and not do what her sponsor said. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, we went out and uh, we went out and we uh, we went to this thing called uh, it was a, it was a special function for her job and down in the old market in Bellevue in Omaha there's this arch and the rumor is if you take this if you take a girl underneath this arch and you kiss her you'll marry her so I had it all figured out I figured I'd take her underneath this arch and I kiss her so I kissed her and I waited and I waited and I waited and I waited and about six months later we're still dating and she says are you always going to live with Max Poe I said, what are you doing, proposing? And she said, I don't know. So we started dating. And, and I don't know if you have sponsorship like we have sponsorship. You don't make a decision unless you talk to your sponsor. That's just a, I mean, if you do, you're getting the rope. And uh, I walk in, I walk in to, to, to Foxhall Group one night. And I said, Jerry and Dick, I'd like to talk to you. They said, yeah, sure. And, and we've been dating a while. And I said, I think I want to marry Mary. And they said, why don't you think about it for a couple of weeks and come back. We'll talk about it. And I'm an alcoholic, man. Jeez, don't make me think about anything for a couple of weeks. And I mean, I had my decision made by the time I walked Foxhall. And, and a couple of weeks later, I came back. I said, yeah, I'd like to marry her. And uh, I went to her. And, and at this time, she was living in an apartment. And I said, would you marry me? And she said, yes. And I was dumbfounded. I thought, wow, she's going to marry me. And uh, we had this huge, huge, huge ego wedding planned. I did. She did, and I did. Of course, she's been sober longer than me, so she's not, you know, she went through treatment at halfway house. But... So I went to Dick and Jerry. I said, I got it, I got it all planned out. Clancy's coming in. He's going to stand up for my best man. Uh, 
Dick's going to stand up for me, and Jerry's going to... I mean, it's kind of a sponsorship thing, you know? Clancy sponsors Dick, Dick sponsors Jerry, and Jerry sponsors me, and he said, why don't you get in reality? Why don't you just go up to the courthouse and get married? And we went up to the courthouse and got married uh, 12 years ago. And uh, we got married. It was a very tough relationship. I mean, she had this little girl, nine years old, and I'd go in the apartment complex, and I'd say, you know, Becky, why don't you clean her room? Your room? And she'd say, no. So I'd go clean her room for her. Uh, I'd ask her to do the dishes, and she'd say no, so I'd do the dishes. So we didn't have a very good relationship. And uh, for a long time, eventually we got moved to Bellevue, and we started doing the Bellevue thing, and she went to Alateen. She started being really active in Alateen, and today she's 23 years old. And uh, she graduated in high school four years ago, and uh, she's a wonderful kid. I mean, we gave her, I mean, our house is, was always full with people in Alcoholics Anonymous and Alamo. They're always filled. And uh, today she's chosen to do her own thing down in Texas, and she's not, she's getting tattoos and pierced pierces and drinking and doing drugs, and that's okay. I can accept that. I just hope someday she can remember that alcoholics not in her life um, because she doesn't have very good contact with her parents, with me or with her mother, but she's doing her own deal, and, and that's okay. I'm okay with that today. And, and uh, she calls once a month and wants money, and we say no because we just can't do it anymore. Um, and uh, that's a sad story, but really it's, it's a good story because I think she's going to get here one of these days. I just keep praying for her. And uh, we had a great life. And, and I'll tell you, uh, seven years sober, I had, a, I had a sheriff knock on my door and, and he gave me a, 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 a summons to appear in court because my ex-wife wanted more, more payments. She thought she deserved more child support payments. And at this time, she was living in a one-room mobile home and driving a really nice Camaro and uh, really not doing very well with my daughter. And I had been seeing my daughter every weekend. And... My wife, Mary, said, you know, maybe we should go for custody, and I didn't want to go for custody because I still didn't know how to be a parent. And, uh, you know, the sheriff said, hey, here's your summons. It was on my seventh anniversary. And I said, I better call my sponsor. I called my sponsor, and he gave me some advice to go check and talk to an attorney. And, and I went to this attorney's office, and I told this attorney everything about me, about being sober and alcoholics now for seven years. I don't have a lot of money. I, I had a better job by this time. And, and I said, I, I think we better go for custody. And this woman looked me right in the eye and said, I can't, I can't promise you anything, but we'll give it a try. I need $5,000. I said, I ain't got $5,000. She said, try to get something. And I got in my car, and I, and I went over to my father-in-law's place. He's a lawyer in Council Bluffs, Iowa. And I sat down, and I looked him right in the eye, and I said, I need to do this for me and Jennifer and Mary and Becky, and I, I need to get custody of my daughter. And he wrote me a check. And I told him that I would make payments every month this month. He said, okay. And I went back there, and, and it was kind of strange. Uh, that week, I, I had custody of my daughter that weekend, and, and uh, went to drop her off. And, and my ex-wife is always—we've always had an excellent relationship since I've been sober. And we're polite, we're friendly. Um, and I walked in, and she said, "I need to talk to you." And I said, "Yeah." And Jennifer and Becky went outside, and she said, "I really want to tell you something that I can no longer do this with Jennifer. I want to give custody, full custody, to you because you have a better life." And, folks, I'm not saying to tell you that I did that on my own. It's Alcoholics Anonymous, and God, as I understand him, gave me the ability to be a better parent. I watch the people in these rooms treat their kids like family, to treat their family like family, to tell, tell, tuck your daughter in bed at night and say, I love you. We didn't have that in my house. And, uh, I, was, I mean, it was, a one, it was a great week because I went to Great Plans Roundup, and all my friends in Alcoholics Anonymous helped my little girl move in. And uh, if she ever gets to Cincinnati, Ohio, please save her a seat. She is just like me. She is such a largest ham in the world. I mean, she just turned 17 years old. She's going to graduate from high school. She's a great kid, but she's alcoholic, and she's that far away. And, uh, and if she ever gets her, please help her out. Please give the hand of A for her because she'll, she'll need it. And uh, we have a great relationship. We, uh, 
We have done wonderful things in Alcoholics Anonymous. We uh, we have done things that I, I never thought I could do. I, you know, I had some pro I had some health problems a couple of years ago, and I got to tell you about this. I I, uh, I had some stomach problems, and they they did some tests on me, and they found a a growth on my uh, prostate, and they were going to go inside. and And uh, if you're an alcoholic like me, I get real nervous when they say prostate. So I made my will out. I made my will, and. Uh, all my A stuff was going to all my pigeons, and I mean, I really had everything down to the T. And and uh, they went in and, and they did this test on me, and they came out, and I was I was out of it. And next thing I know, my wife's pounding on my chest, and all these doctors and nurses are standing around laughing at me, just laughing. And I wake up coming out of this. I say, "What's wrong?" Because they thought I was going to. I mean, they really thought I had cancer. And this doctor says, "Are you okay?" I said, "Yeah, I think. What's wrong?" My wife says, "They found a wad of bubble gum on your prostate." <laughs> No, they found, a, they found a lot of bubblegum on my colon. I thought they were joking. And they showed me a picture of a lot of bubblegum on my colon. And I went home. And I tell you, I was scared to death. I went home that night, and I went to the group, and I got cases of bubblegum. So it's, it's really true. If, if, you're, if you're chewing gum, don't swallow it. I ain't kidding you. And uh, it's funny now. It wasn't funny a couple years ago. I'm gonna tell you. I was scared to death. And the funny thing about it is, I can laugh at it today, but it was real embarrassing at the time. Uh, but I've had a great, I've had a great, great venture in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and I just want to close with a couple more stories that, that that saved my life. That literally showed me the miracle works in this room. Uh, my father left me when I was nine years old, and I hadn't seen him for a number of years. And, and a year and a half over, I was trying to make my amends. And, and my amends process was very strange because my sponsor made me, uh, after filing bankruptcy, he made me go back and pay these amends off. And I don't know if you've ever filed bankruptcy. It, they won't let you take They won't accept any money. And there's lawyers in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous that help you pay those things back. And I called the First National Bank of Omaha one day, and I said, I'm Scott Barnett, I filed bankruptcy, it's $2,000, and, and I really need to pay you back to make it right with me. And he said, I'm sorry, Scott, you don't need to. And I said, would you be kind enough to call my sponsor and tell him that? <laughs> and uh, it didn't work. And I went back and I made all those amends with my finances, which was probably the hardest thing in the world for me to do. And I can stand here today, and, and I literally made all those amends. And that's really been a part of keeping me here. But a year and a half sober, I, I, I was looking for my father because I was on this stretch to make my amends with my family. And I got a phone call. My mother got a phone call from my, my aunt, and my aunt had my father's phone number. And I picked up the phone number on a March, March 11th, March 12th, 1982, uh, March 1983. And, and I called this number, and a lady answered. I said, hi, this is, is Jack there. And she said, hang on a second. And she handed this guy the phone, and we started talking. And I said, Jack, this is your son, Scott, from, Bell, from Plattsmouth. And he said, why in the hell are you calling me? And I started telling him about, I'm an alcoholic synonymous, I'm trying to get my life straight, and I'm trying to do these things. And he said, who made you that way? And I said, I drank a lot, I did a lot of drugs, and I'm in the right place. And we both started crying, and he said, it's really kind of strange. I went to my first AA meeting tonight. He had been tied up in a straitjacket for 10 days. And uh, that's a miracle. My father's been sober 12 years today. He lives in Memphis, Tennessee. He's very active in Alcoholics Anonymous. He looks like Popeye the Sailor Man. I mean, he comes up to our roundups in Omaha, and he's just a lovable guy. And we talk every week. I call him every Thursday night, and we talk about AA. We talk about speakers. We talk about cricket knows my dad. I mean, he's just a great guy. And, uh, you know, that's a wonderful story. But on the other side of that, I have a mother that's 61 years old and 
that's had a number of strokes that's dying from this disease. And I have invited her to come with me to meetings. And I invited her to come to conferences. And she says, no, because I'm too old. She says she's too old for this thing. And, then, and you know what? A week ago, on my anniversary, my mother sends me a card and says, congratulations on 15 years. And, and it's a wonderful thing. She goes down the water hole in Plattsmouth. And she goes there still today and she drinks and she sits and talks about how wonderful her son is. How he runs Alcoholics Anonymous in Bellevue. It, it, it's really a true story because people get sober from plasma. They come up and says, I met your mother. She thinks you're just wonderful. And that's a great story. And I know that someday I'm going to have to accept the fact that she doesn't want this thing. And that's okay. And one, I have to tell you one other story, and I'm going to sit down because I know you guys are getting restless, but I love to talk about me. Um, I had one amends list on my list that I needed. There was two amends list on my list I needed to make, and I didn't know where they were. And my grandfather, my grandmother got killed when I was 17 years old. She got struck by a semi, drug seven blocks, and they never found out who did it, and I was in charge of her funeral at 17 years old. I had no idea what I was doing. And I'd never gone and made amends to my grandfather and never made amends to my grandmother. And uh, three years ago, Easter, I, I, a friend of mine in Alcoholics Thomas found my, found my grandfather in a, on, uh, in a manor down in Nebraska City. And Easter week, I went down there, and, and I walked into this room with this old man of 73 years old, 74 years old, and I said, Grandpa, my name is Scott. I'm your grandson. And I want to let you know that I was a rotten grandson. And I know that. But I want to, from here on out, I want to be the best grandson you ever see. And I was wrong for being that way. And uh, I walked out of there. I went to the flower shop. And I sent him an Easter lily. And he had no clue who I was. Thirty days later, my grandfather died. Let me tell you what. I sat in that funeral home very proud of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because if I wouldn't have done that 30 days before, I would not have been very free. Because that was something I needed to do. And last week, I finally found my grandmother's funeral stone. I finally found her stone. You ever seen a guy walking in, in, the, in, the, in the graveyard with a suit on trying to find a stone? Last week, it was me. I mean, I walked up every damn aisle trying to find this thing. And I found it, and I, and I made some. I talked to my grandmother, and I made it right with my grandmother. And it's okay today. I am truly a free man. I have truly been lucky because sponsorship has put things in my life that I never wanted to do, but I'm doing today. I have a job today. It's a great job. I make. A, I mean, I do fairly well. I'm very successful in the business I'm in. I'm still in the grocery business. I still sell grocery. I'm the ice cream man now. And, and, uh, everybody in Bellevue loves me because we always have ice cream at my house. And uh, I have. I have. I have a destiny today. I want to stay sober and I want to help others. And I want to sp sponsor guys and I want to give what you guys have given me away. Because if I don't, I won't make this thing. And I know today that I got to do the same one day at a time. So I deeply, deeply thank you for inviting me because it's truly an honor. Thanks a lot.